I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO, a global design firm that takes a human-centered approach to innovation. IDEO has helped innovate products, including Apple's first mouse in 1980, the first stand-up toothpaste for Procter & Gamble, surgical tools for Medtronic, and furniture for Steelcase. But IDEO also works with governments and social organizations to help transform education systems and deliver social services. David is the founder of the Stanford D School, also known as the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, which emphasizes a multidisciplinary, human-centered approach to innovation. He is the co-author with his brother Tom of Creative Confidence. The book describes a process that helps people realize their creative potential. Welcome. Thank you. When you're in a Boeing 747 <laughs> and you see the laboratory occupied light, how do you feel? <laughs> I remember those days, you know, Boeing was my first job out of college. I was in a group called the Passenger Payloads Group. So anything that's inside of the airplane, you know, the the stowage bins and the carpets and the seats and that. And so uh, I and my responsibility was in lights and signs. So the panels along the side or the lavatory occupied sign. And your life has taken a different course and you help other companies innovate. But do you have like a reflective moment when you are in an airplane thinking, hmm, you know, I this is where it all started for me professionally? Um, I always loved planes as a kid. If you were kind of an electrical mechanical engineer like I was or a kid interested in mechanisms and things that move, um, the plane was the kind of most... Um, you know, complex thing you could think of. So yeah, I am sitting there kind of with a better understanding of why it's staying up in the air, I suppose, than the average person. That, mm. And that feels good. I have no fear of flying based on, you know, kind of the understanding of the plane. You grew up in Ohio. You were one of four children. Yes. Your father was an engineer at Goodyear, yes. the tire company. Yes. Your mother was a housewife. What were some examples of engineering or inventive activities that you did around the house? I was obsessed with kind of taking things apart and seeing how they work. So, you know, the the radio didn't work in the car, and I'd take it apart. And sometimes when you put it back together, it actually worked. Bicycles were the vehicle of choice for a 12-year-old, right? And so I would take my bike apart and sandblast it and paint it a different color or, you know, weld two bicycles together for a tandem long before tandems existed. But, um, yeah, so, you know, like our, uh, as a kid, my, my life was more like uh, if something didn't work, we didn't call the repairman, you know, we... Um, we fix it ourselves. There's a story of you inventing a telephone for a girlfriend. Can you explain that? Sure, sure. Um, I've always made gifts for everybody my whole life. You know, I've never bought a card or rarely bought a gift in a store. I usually make things for people. And and um, this particular girl I was trying to win over, I, I really wanted her to only call me. And so I took a phone and I took it apart and took all the buttons apart and took all the guts out of it and replaced the guts so that if you can think of it as the, all the buttons end up pushing the redial button with my number on it underneath. You can't see that. It looks like a normal phone. But any button is really just completely wired directly to the redial button, which I've programmed my phone number on. And so no matter what button she pushed, it called me. So here you are, an inventive youth. You played in a rock band, and your first job was at Boeing, which you did not like. How come? Well, you know, I'm not sure you want, like, uh, a creative 22-year-old changing the way the plane flies, you know what I mean, like, or taking risk. And the excitement for a person like me is to come up with a, an idea that's new to the world. Th- that was not offered as a, as a, young, as a young engineer 
working for Boeing, and so it seemed it seemed mundane. And you know, I'm like a kid right out of Carnegie Mellon, you know, tr- trying to do something exciting. And luckily, uh, Stanford at the time, this is in the mid 1970s,、yes. uh, had a had a program, a design program that you heard about as you were carpooling one day. <laughs>、yes. Can you explain how you initially found out about yeah, it? Because、sure. in a way, it was sort of a pivot moment for your life. Stanford was the pivot moment in my life. Absolutely, joining Stanford. So it was funny. So I'm working at Boeing, and it's 1973, and it's the gas crisis. I don't know people who remember 1973. We were standing in lines, and you could only get gas on every other day. And I'm sitting, in, and, and so I put up a sign that said, "Hey, you know, would somebody like to carpool with me?" And this guy named Bill Potts answered the answered the the, the、uh, note, and we started driving together. And he's still one of my best friends today, since 1973. And he、um, he had just come from Stanford, and he had been in this program. And so as we're as we're driving, he kept saying, "You got to go to Stanford. It's perfect for you. It's just perfect for you." And I said, "You know, you don't know how bad my grades are. You know, I can't get into Stanford and stuff." Anyway, to make a long story short, he eventually badgered me to the point that I applied. So he was really right. I got to Stanford, and I that was in '75, and I haven't left. What did design thinking look like when you were a student? Yeah, so Stanford really was the kind of ground zero for what we call design thinking today. I mean, the, there's design, you know, which is kind of was in art schools, which was kind of about aesthetics. What should something look like, especially something new? You know, you know, what's a laptop look like if you've never seen a laptop before, right? Or and so it is magical, and that's why we love certain chairs and we love certain flower pots.、But That was in Stanford design, and then there was kind of engineering design, which was, you know, how do you design this rocket so that it gets to the moon? That's、mm-hmm. engineering design, right? And Stanford was kind of right in the middle, the the、um, the kind of combination of kind of art and engineering and kind of. You know, user interaction. You know, how do you interact with a, a door handle, or how do you? And so the aesthetics were present, and the engineering issues were、uh, present, and the human issues were present in this Stanford program.、Um, started in 1958, actually. And so when I got there, I wasn't the deepest engineer in the room, right? I wasn't as technical as some of my colleagues, and that made it n- made me not as as viable in certain jobs. And I I wasn't as、um, artistic as some of my friends. Who were do, who had gone to the art schools, right? But、uh, this this kind of common the synthesizing of those things was a perfect fit for me, and that's what the Stanford program was about at the time. So it it didn't really belong in any of the Stanford product design program. Really didn't fit in any of the kind of industries that already existed, industrial design or engineering design. It was its own thing, and so that's. I'm glad I found it, you know, because it was the right fit for me. You found it, and you've perpetuated it, taking a more human-focused view on the design process. So yeah, so it, that's the crux. If you had to say, okay, what's the one thing about what we do, what we do at Stanford, and what we do at IDEO? It's this, this、um, tendency, this. This being human-centered as a way to be innovative. Most places are、um, they either have invented a technology and they're trying to see whether humans will like it, or they have a business idea and they'll try and then they try to see if humans will、uh, adapt to it. We do the backwards to that. Our, our approach is we go in and try to. Understand what people value, what's meaningful to people in a certain area, and then we'll try to invent the other thing. So, and, and what's an example? Examples of that might be improve the experience of taking the train from San Francisco to to Palo Alto, and so. 
they'll go in and they'll um, like look at the whole customer journey. They'll look at finding out about when the train runs, the, about getting to the train, about standing on the platform, about boarding the train, about sitting on the train, about food on the train, about using your thing, and all these little dots in that journey. And then they'll try to figure out how to be um, make each one of those dots extraordinary. Whatever it is that we do, even medical devices, or we look at it from a human perspective and then try to, um, to try to figure out how to make it really fit, how it will delight the person who's going to use it. Another example is the Embrace Infant Warmer. Uh, can you describe how that came to be? In the case of Embrace, there's a group of students who were um, looking at this notion of incubators because there's so many babies die because of low birth weight in poor developing countries. What they looked at was, um, you know, like how we can make a low-cost incubator because an incubator costs like $2,000. And as they went, our, our methodology does what we call a bias towards action, just jump right in. So they go to Nepal, they, they go to where the babies are, they go to where the hospitals are, and they find out that the, that the incubators are empty. And the reason is the babies are out in the bush, they're out in the villages, they're not near the hospitals and they can't get to the hospitals. So they have this idea that what they'll do is they'll make this kind of, basically think of it as a... Um, a uh, sleeping bag for babies. And so instead of costing $2,000, it costs like $20, right? And they can distribute them to the doctors and all these um, low birth weight babies can be kept warm and then they have a chance to live. What's interesting about this as an example is being out there in the field really gives you firsthand exposure to things that you could not come up with in the office. For example, they discovered that you shouldn't just say on the instructions heat to 37 degrees Celsius because women have a bias. They see Western medicine as aggressive yeah. and yeah. they thought, well, maybe not 37, maybe 35. And so instead, the students in your class uh, just had an okay signal when yeah. it was warm. Enough. You know, when it got to, oh, okay, this is the kind of thing you learn in our process we, about being iterative and building prototypes. Rather than kind of trying to make it perfect, we just build one. I mean, the normal process, unfortunately, in a lot of companies is to, like, have all the smart people sit around a table and talk about it. You can't imagine what the real issues are. And so not only do we jump in quickly and start building things, but we iterate. You allude to Yoda from Star Wars where he says, do or do not, there is no try. That resonated with me. Just get pen to paper. Just put the prototype out. Yes. We call it bias towards action. Jump in. A crummy first draft is much better than procrastinating. Then it's a, it's a simple a matter of editing it. So if you build a crummy prototype which is quicker and you get it out. First, you get information back quicker. But the other thing is people are willing to help you more with a crummy prototype, right? If you, had, if you build this beautiful, shiny, glowing thing, people say, ooh, I, bet, you know, I don't like it, but I better not say anything because you know, it's done. But if it's this crummy thing made out of cardboard with some glue on it, like stuck on it, they say, oh, I got an idea. You should do this. You should improve this way. And, then, and so then the question for success is only how many of those iterations can you get in? How many times can you build a new idea, show it to people, all the stakeholders, and then have them help you and then do it again and do it again? That's the key. Related to this is an example you give in your book of making ceramic pots. A teacher told half his class to make as many ceramic pots as they wanted, and the other half to put all their energy into making one best pot. Turns out the students who focused on quantity or lots of iterations rather than quality ironically made better pots. 
If you say to somebody, well, I'm only going to judge you on how wonderful the one pot is that you do versus make as many, don't, I don't care, make as many pots as you can. Focus on the quantity. And the, the study showed that focusing on the process and on quantity results in a much better pot. Lots better. Lots of much better pot. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO. We'll hear more from David coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO, a global design firm that takes a human-centered approach to innovation. IDEO works with companies, governments, and social organizations to help innovate products, education, transportation systems, among others. David is also the founder of Stanford's Design School, or the D-School, which emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to innovation. He's the co-author with his brother Tom of Creative Confidence. The book teaches a process called Guided Mastery, which unlocks the creative potential in anyone, even those who thought they were not creative to begin with. We're talking about prototypes. Uh, yes. And Steve Jobs was a big user of prototypes, incidentally. Yes. Yes. And the reason I bring him up is he was one of your first clients. He was. How did you come to meet him? Yeah, he's probably one of them, our most important client. I met him because Apple was just getting started and my little company was just getting started. And I walked down one day and talked to a guy named Jerry Manick, who was the uh, the person who, who, he wasn't inside of Apple, but he was a little bit ahead of me at Stanford. He had designed the Apple II, which was the first computer. He was there and we, I started talking to him. He said, oh, I need help at Apple. And we met Steve Jobs and, and then, you know, we just started designing stuff. He's important uh, professionally to you, and also he introduced you to your wife. <laughs> yeah. Steve and I were kind of bachelors at the same time and kind of enjoyed hanging out a bit. Uh, he got married. I think it bothered him that, <laughs> that I wasn't married. So one time he called me uh, and said, uh, it was Thanksgiving, and he said, uh, I found the girl for you. And I mm-hmm. said, Steve, you know, I trust you about, you know, like circuits and, you know, computers, but I don't trust you. I, you're no yentai. I mean, I don't trust you about women. And he said, no, no, I got the right girl for you. You know, how he's so positive about everything, you know, and he had no, no uh, lack of confidence. So I said, I couldn't, I had a meeting in Sacramento. I said, I can't come. And then the meeting got canceled in Sacramento. And so he, um, I said, I called him. I said, are you still, you know, can I still come to Thanksgiving dinner? And I went and I met my wife and I met my future wife, Casey, there. And so Jobs, in addition to being kind of my most important client in, in the history of the company, he's probably um, also one of the most important people to me. And we had a long friendship. He helped me with the D school. He's in any kind of big decision. I always knew he'd be, you know how when you have friends and you're afraid they might not tell you the truth because they don't want to hurt your feelings? Hmm. That was not the case here. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to your professional life, why was he m- your most important client? Other than his uh, visibility was, was so vast, and Apple is you know larger than life, uh, that other clients came to you. The most important thing he did for us was he had this way of doing everything with intention. 
I mean, like how you put it in the box was not an afterthought after you were done, right? And what color it was or how the person, how it felt when the person touched it. At the time, companies were concerned about the engineering or the, the software, the hardware part of it. And the other stuff was just incidental. And he, he was not that way. And so not only did he do everything with intention, but he set a standard that was beyond what you thought you could do. So I think for for us and for every designer that's worked for him since then they've all done their best work for him because he was so demanding and he took you to a place where you didn't think you could even go and we continued doing that even when we weren't working for steve anymore we we had that in our it was our habit to work in that way I want to go back to the very early days of IDEO. Um, Basically, when you were 26 years old, it wasn't called that at the time. It was called HK Design because your co-founder was Dean uh, Hovey. Yes. What was the mission for the company then? Um, The the mission for the company was to enjoy being with your friends. Uh, At Boeing and at National Cash, where I worked before, it was kind of hard for me. You know, I didn't know anything. I was used to, like, having a good time with my friends in the summers. So I got to work, and I said, ooh, this is, you know, 12 months a year with, you know, like, people I don't know. When, when I had the chance to start the company, I had just gone through the Stanford program. And so I thought of myself as having these special skills and that um, other people might want them. So I'd go to see companies. It was hilarious. So I'd go to see companies. And I, like I'd go to see a furniture company. And I'd be in there with the CEO. And I'd say, we'd like to design a new chair for you, sir. And he'd, and he'd be asking questions like, what experience have you had designing chairs? And I didn't have the guts to say, not only haven't we haven't designed chairs, we haven't designed anything. <laughs> but what I said was, we have this process. We have this process, and I'll bet you it'll result in a different chair than the people who know have deep knowledge of designing chairs. Our chair will be different, and maybe you know it'll surprise you. And, and it built from there. What are other examples of important clients for you in the early days, aside from Apple? Um, there were lots of them. Uh, the first client we had was um, a reading machine for blind people. It was uh, called Telesensory Systems. It was uh, a thing where you put your hand in it and it raised the letters underneath, like with the little ne- kind of needles, like, you know, those pin art things where you put your face in them and it pushes the pins around. You know, we did bicycles and, you know, movie special effects and, you know, like whatever. I mean, because our thing's about a process, right? We're not experts. I mean, we've gained expertise in certain areas, but especially at that time, we were only experts at the process, not experts at any particular industry. Another person who has been influential on your career is Professor Albert Bandera. He's a Stanford psychologist, and he has this notion of guided mastery, which you've demonstrated in your book, for example, with a snake phobia. Can you explain briefly what that is and how you apply it to design? Albert Bandura is a, a famous psychologist. We just kind of discovered him, and I went and saw him in his office one day, and he's kind of like the world's expert on uh, self-efficacy, which is very related to creative confidence, which is he defines it as the, you have a sense of the world and that you can accomplish what you set out to do, that you feel like that. That's self-efficacy. What we found is that that we've been using guided mastery to get for people to get over this kind of fear of failure or fear of being judged, right? Whereas he was using guided mastery in all kinds of areas, including phobias, and that's what I found really interesting. So he'd have these patients who had a fear of like snakes or spiders their whole lives, and they weren't going outside or they weren't going on hikes because they might run into a snake. 
And so the way he got them out of that, and he had nearly 100% cure rate in a few hours, he uses guided mastery where he holds their hand and he takes them through a series of successes with respect to the snake. He, you know, you see the snake in the other room and it doesn't bother you. You see a friend with the snake. You look through a two-way mirror. You stand in an open door. I mean, you put a glove on. And it turns out we've been doing that with, with clients and companies and we've been doing it with students for years, which is they think of themselves as only analytical. We put them in teams. And then what we do is we do small projects with them and and they succeeded having a breakthrough idea in that small project. And then we take we make them a little more complex problem, you know, a little more complex. And each time they succeed, and by the end, they say, "Oh my God, I'm creative," and they flip to a, this state of creative confidence where it changes their lives. I mean, I, I know I'm sounding a little like over the top, but it changes it changes their life completely. And they, in their own personal life, they kind of uh, take on more difficult challenges. They have more stick to It's a change. Bandura finds the same thing with the people who have been cured of phobias. How can you apply this approach to uh, organizations you've worked with? Mm-hmm. Give a specific example. Yes. Yeah, so we use the same methodology, this guided mastery and this series of projects uh, to, to help any culture be more uh, more creative. K-12 education is by far my favorite. We look at the San Francisco Unified School District and try to improve the experience that kids have at lunch, right? You go in there, you look at it, and you find out that lunch really isn't about food for kids. It's about the socialization of seeing their friends at lunch. Mm-hmm. So all you really have to do is have them have a great experience meeting their friends, and then you can throw in a healthy lunch, you know, and and uh, and make a big impact on on improving that experience. Through the, these processes, you are empowering these organizations and these governments and these companies, giving them the confidence that they too are creative. Yeah, the end result is that a government or a company or an individual ends up with this confidence in their creative ability. It's like if you're a writer being challenged with a blank piece of paper, right? I mean, that's daunting, right? But if you have, uh, if you're mindful of a creative process that you own, that's in your body, and somebody gives you a difficult problem, you don't hesitate. You say, I know how to do this. How has your personal life changed as a result of being so empathetic and human-centered when it comes to helping organizations and companies with their products and services? I think I can tell when I'm in a room with people, I think I have a better sense by being empathetic what they want. And then it's easier to make the compromise. Okay, I'll give them what they want, knowing what I want, right? It almost starts to feel like a sixth sense about um, what people care about. I mean, you know, it's the same as, you know, when you're driving and (laughs) letting somebody in or letting somebody cut in line with you in Starbucks because they're late. One of the things we do at the D school is we check in before every meeting. We go around and everybody checks in and they tell what's going on in their life so that I can treat them differently. I know if you're stressed because your mother's ill or your kid just had went to the hospital in an accident or this is your anniversary, I mean, I'm going to treat you differently because I know what's going on in your life rather than if you just start a business meeting, you kind of hold everybody to some neutral thing. Some people are having good days and some people are having bad days or some people are really happy to be at this meeting or some people wish they weren't there. The meeting's going to be different and we're going to treat each other different if we know that.
Maybe I should have done a check-in before this interview. <laughs> What's going on in your life right now that I should know about <laughs> that might provide context? Well, I'm in New York and I'm running around talking to lots of people, so it's not it's not my normal day of uh, I'm I'm missing my classes to come to come to New York and and talk about the book. You know, I, I don't like to miss classes. I want to be there for the students, and so I have that angst. But uh, but I'm thrilled that you know from a place where people thought of design as kind of after you know the kind of painting something the right color at the end or making sure that it's pretty that now you know we are getting to be able to have a, a strategic role there's there was an IBM survey that said the creative ability of their employees was their number one concern we've moved from being at kind of at the kids table to the main table and that that's that's why I'm very excited to be here and talk about this I want to talk a little bit about the founding of the D School. You're a professor at Stanford. You've been there since 1978, and you always kind of made fun of yourself because they they wanted to find ways to give you a smaller office. What has changed in the ether in a way that you were able to convince the president, uh, John Hennessy, to create a whole school around this? Yes. So, um, you know, back when design was mostly in the art department or in at Stanford, it was in this kind of lightweight engineering mode. It uh, it didn't fit in the model of the university of like depth and trying to win Nobel prizes and all the other things that go on at university. And um, it really wasn't central to the university. What happened, I believe, is that as problems got more complex. And as new solutions needed to come up with that were not down the normal discipline path, they weren't deep in a narrow silo. The big ideas were coming in between the silos. And so something had to be done. So we started talking about T-shaped people, people had breadth and depth. And what happened was that uh, we started to have some success. I was an engineering professor, so I always taught in just straight engineering classes, right? But you know, after tenure and I had some had some flexibility, I started teaching with other professors who were just my friends. And we knew that the university, John Hennessy, is really big on multidisciplinary teaching. I would bring up a business school professor, a computer science professor, and we would teach, and their students would come with them. I started to see the students' um, eyes light up as we did this, and so we said, I went to the university and said, look, we should we should codify this. I mean, I think this is a big deal, and we should start teaching cl- and do this in a systematic way and have an institute where, pe- where students would come from all around the university, and that eventually became the D-School. What's an example of big problems that you felt were were falling in between the silos of these specialized fields? Well, it's the big stuff. It's all, you know, it's like, you know, health care and transportation, sustainability, K-12. I mean, that's the stuff that we started working on. Those are the laboratories that eventually ended up at the D-School. Once you decided you wanted to institutionalize this, can you explain how you got the funding for it? One day I was... Um, in the office of Hasso Plattner, who's uh, one of the founders of SAP, the big German software company, and I, um, IDEA was doing a project for him, and uh, we were and we were kind of done with the business meeting. We were talking about things that we enjoyed doing, you know, and he was talking about sailing and and Formula One racing and stuff. He was involved, which I was really interested. In. And he said, you know, what are you interested? in? And I said, well, I'm really interested in this multidisciplinary teaching thing that I, I've been dreaming of. And to make a long story short, he said, well, I'll help you with that. So I went back to Stanford. And when I got back to Stanford, I was telling this story. And the people at Stanford said, you know, when a billionaire says he's willing to help you, you should probably call him right back. (laughs) (laughs) So he um, 
he funded the whole thing. He put up $35 million. First round, $35 million. I mean, he said to me the other day, he put his arm around me and said, this is one of the most important things I've done in my life. And needless to say, it's one of the most important things you've done in your life. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, the most. I mean, it's, um, it's affecting so many people. Seeing these kids in my office just, you know, after they've taken a couple of D-School classes and they're just emotionally so excited, you know, they always wanted to be a creative person. You've gotten into Stanford, but... You know, you you feel kind of, you know, the... Trapped. Trapped, yeah. The one that, like, ad agencies are the worst, right? They have this thing where they say there's the creatives and the non-creatives. Well, if you're in the non-creative group, how does that feel? These kids have been in the non-creative group. In, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a successful group, it's just a non-creative group, right? Mm-hmm. And so to add that tool, to add that muscle to your personality, uh, this confidence in your creativity, it's fun to be around these people. They're so happy. Oh, I'll tell you a little great story. So in one of the interviews we did in the book was with a Buddhist monk, a former Buddhist monk named Jimpa. And Jimpa is the translator for the Dalai Lama. He's, uh, he's on the Compassion Project at Stanford where he's taking the monks and putting them in the scanner and looking at what happens in their brain when they're in a state of compassion. Uh, we were talking to him about uh, create our book, Creative Confidence and stuff, and he said, you know, there's really not a word in the Tibetan language for creative. I said, when he said, I said, so what's the, you know, what's a word that's close? And he said, well, the closest word is natural. That basically you want to be more creative, be more natural. And that that it's only a question of taking away the stuff that got in the way of that. You know, the kind I love kindergartners, right? You go in and say to a to a kindergarten, how many, you know, how many of you are artists? How many are you creative? Everybody raises their hand, and refrigerators are full of pictures. You know, that their parents supporting them, and somewhere about fourth grade or age nine, we start evaluating them, and they start getting the message that we're saying, and they opt out of this creativity, and that's got to stop. You've written a, a book with your brother, Tom Kelly, uh, Creative Confidence, Unleashing the Creative Potential Within Us All. And the catalyst f- for the book was your finding out, in a, in a way, was your finding out that you had throat cancer yes. in 2007. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, so in 2007, uh, I was shocked. I was in my daughter's classroom, like helping the kids design new backpacks, you know, in the fourth grade. and. And I got a call from the doctor, and he said that the lump in my neck was not what they thought it was. It was cancer. And I struggled to complete the, the, you know, the project with my daughter. And then I came home. And uh, you know, it, was, it was the bad kind, you know, 40% chance of survival. And so um, I struggled for quite a long time with, you know, with the cancer, but um, I'm in remission. My brother was there for me every day. And so... Uh, when he, um, when we got done, we decided we'd do a project together, and we came up with this book as the way to do it. Why do you think you are so close with your brother? Yeah, I don't know. I think you know it has a lot to do with my parents being so open. My parents were very um, kind of tolerant of things, you know, like uh, I'd get a bicycle when I was twelve, and and at, for Christmas, and on December the twenty sixth, I'd take it down and sandblast it and paint it a different color. It was perfectly good red bicycle, but I wanted it to be a different color. They just felt it was okay for us to do stuff. So when uh, we had a house that was too small, and so when my sister, one of my sisters, was born, my brother and I moved to the basement. So I think we were, you know, out of sight, out of mind a bit. So picture you're two boys and you're in the basement and <laughs> nobody's watching you, and you kind of have a good time. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks. My guest has been David Kelly, co-founder of IDEO. 
Coming up, we'll meet Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Emily Weiss, founder of the online beauty products company Glossier. Emily launched Glossier's first line of skin products in 2014. In 2010, she founded Into the Gloss, an online community dedicated to beauty. Visitors get tips on skin, hair, makeup, and learn the beauty routines of leading members of the cosmetic and fashion industries. Prior to starting Glossier and Into the Gloss, Emily was a fashion assistant at Vogue and W Magazines. Welcome. Thank you. You know everything about me. Is that all there That's is? That's it. That's it. We can stop. Well, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much. How would you describe what Into the Gloss is? The reason for being for Into the Gloss is really that as a, um, in the time I was a 25-year-old, style-minded, you know, very enthusiastic consumer of beauty and um, fashion. And I'd always loved beauty products, but I really didn't know where to look except going to a store to talk to someone who I'd never met before to give me advice. I thought that seemed kind of silly. So what I wanted to do was interview all my heroes. You said this interview will be an hour, and I was like, oh, no problem. I do this all the time. I sit on floors of women's bathrooms from Ariana Huffington to Alexa Chung to, you know, Selena Gomez and Isabel Morant and ask them about their approach to beauty. Mm -hmm. And that's not a simple question. The idea was really to bring beauty to the Internet in a, in a meaningful way. Where does the conversation go beyond what is my beauty regimen? Oh, all, all over. If you think about it, your, your, your relationship to beauty begins at a very young age, from watching your mother and what she does, from not being allowed to use certain things and then, you know, having to go out on your own, you know, from learning how to shave your legs to cutting yourself open to, you know, crazy eyebrow trauma suffered in teen years, tadpole brows. So it's not just the kind of us weekly what's in your bag. It's not just what you're currently doing. It's everything that's gotten you there. One's relationship with beauty, it's such a personal and complex uh, relationship, yet there were so few places that you could go to where people were talking about just that mm -hmm. in 2010. And it's striking how, you know, fashion is much more public, right? Mm -hmm. Fashion has been pervasive. It's in every magazine. And it's sort of like beauty's coat. Yeah, I think I, I, I like to say that's a really insightful comment because um, even from the beginning of Into the Gloss, I was kind of mad. I, I started to understand that beauty is almost like this kid's sister, or this ugly stepsister to fashion. Like the clothes come first, it's all about the outfit, it's all about the shoes, and then you figure out your face and your hair kind of after. Ironically, because that's probably, you know, what's most personal and important to every person. Right. Ironically, it's like really this... Um, I mean, who isn't tormented by their hair, right? You're always figuring out what to do with it. So I think it is, I often in my life found that I started with beauty. Even just, you know, anecdotally, like changing my hair from brown to platinum blonde a couple of years ago, I was like a whole different person. People mm -hmm. didn't recognize me. And then I started dressing in an entirely different way. We started this interview with a sound check where I asked, you know, what what did you eat this morning? And you said, you, you know, you're on a cleanse and mm -hmm. you're eating these shakes with almond butter and what else? So many things. Flaxseed oil, coconut oil. 
almond milk. The, the reason I mention it is, you know, it's sort of like the gas in your gas tank that, that helps to bring the beauty to totally. the surface. It's all about the self in a way. Yes. And I think of Maslow's like hierarchy of needs. We have warmth and and food and, you know, so next comes like self-actualization Thank you. We, as part of all that, right? I can't believe you're saying this because this is actually what I've been kind of banging on about is in the beauty industry, it's been founded on, I mean, you're talking about a, a quarter trillion dollar global industry. It's a storied industry with heritage brands like Estee Lauder and Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden, who have, you know, were built 50 years ago and 60 years ago um, when technology was totally different, when communications and media were completely different, mm-hmm. and when women were completely different. And I think, you know, when those women created these really pioneering companies, they were addressing the needs of women at that time. Mm-hmm. And I think a big message that happened was very much about glamour, very much about fantasy, very much about a homogenous sort of um, image of perfect and white picket fence and husband and lady of leisure and, you know, blonde kids running around with a Labrador and Palm Beach and, you know, this sort of high life. And I think right now, I mean, it just couldn't be more different for the most part in terms of what women aspire to. Mm -hmm. And I think what women aspire to now is self-actualization. And that has replaced this sex sells fantasy. Mm -hmm. So it's not self, it's not sex sells. I actually think it's self sells. I mean, most of my friends, at least I can't speak for all women. When I think about what I aspire to, it's to be the best version of your Yourself, but you don't aspire to clone, you know, Eva Longoria on the red carpet. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's not the ticket to a better, to a happier me. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier, a digital direct-to-consumer beauty products company. She's also the founder of Into the Gloss, a website focused on beauty that she launched in 2010. Going back to the early days when you were starting your blog, mm-hmm. uh, you were working full-time at Vogue for Elisa Santisi, the mm-hmm. style director. You would uh, work on your blog when? Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I thank God I did that when I was like 25 because I would not be able to do that now because um, it took a lot of stamina. But uh, I would transcribe interviews from, you know, four in the morning till eight and then put up and write and edit whatever photos or, you know, interviews and then go to work by 9.30. And then I would typically shoot the features, you know, upcoming features on the weekends. And Sally Singer, the Vogue editor, Vogue.com, Vogue, Vogue.com. Mm-hmm. she was your first uh, top shelf yep. feature. Top shelf is on your site. You interview people about their beauty regimen. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. That was just amazing because I, I admired Sally. I mean, really, it was an opportunity at 25 to be in a room and actually have FaceTime with these women who I just so admired. And, and thought, not just any room. You're in their, their bathroom. bathroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and you, you're kind of disarmed. You're seeing something unsavory, no matter what. There's always like something weird. There's like a weird toothbrush that's frayed, and you're like, damn, I wish I would have thrown that out. You know, like you're in it together. Have you ever uh, done a top shelf interview where you've where you've been surprised by what people's uh, beauty routine is? I don't know. What I'm are sure. some What are some unlikely finds? I'm always interested in people's aversion or inclusion of plastic surgery. So mm-hmm. I'm always really, you know, I always kind of ask. Sometimes I really ask if I if we're having a certain rapport. You know, I'm like, hey, do you ever get anything done? Do you ever get like, especially women of a certain age, you know, like you're like, so how do you look so good? <laughs> you know, tell me. And so I'm always, it's always interesting to me who 
kind of fesses up and who doesn't. doesn't. Um, and it, I have no judgment either way. Some people just are very casual and are like, yeah, I get Botox. I go, so I go to this doctor. I go every six months. It's great. And other women are like, oh, no, I've, I would never. But you know what? That's personal information. So it, it's, right. it's whatever you want. I want to talk about your, your background. You grew up in Wilton, Connecticut, although you spent you lived in the South also because your father worked for Pitney Bowes. Yes. Now, Pitney Bowes, they put the, the stamping meter on mail, Postage right? meter. Postage yeah. meter. Yep. So can you t- tell me more about your dad's job <laughs> and and w- your, your, your view of his job? Sure. So the first thing I can tell you about my dad's job is never think that um, that's a fun game to play, just running pieces of paper through the postage meter to make cool designs because actually you're printing money. Because uh, you had a Pitney Bowes machine in your we house? We did, yes. We had a Pitney Bowes machine in the basement, a postage meter. And your mom is a homemaker. Yes, and um, and my dad's job. I mean, what I've what I've learned from my dad and what what how I viewed uh, my dad is he is the American dream. I mean, he is from a you know middle class family in Ohio. Um, didn't graduate college. He started working as a door-to-door salesman of Pitney Bowes products uh, in his early 20s. He used to hand stamp his business cards. Funnily enough, he made my own first Into the Gloss cards with me. We did these little nail polish drops on every card. So we, each card was different, had a different color. And he ended up rising through the ranks to become um, president of Pitney Bowes. I learned a ton about you know perseverance and patience and, um, and hard work. Um, there's probably not really many people out there who could say that I'm not hard, extremely hardworking. Even with Into the Gloss, I, I had, I spent, I think, $750 of my own money to, uh, you know, invest, quote unquote, in the building of, of Into the Gloss as a blog and bought a camera for $500 and, you know, that was it. What about your mom? Every woman in her moments has some communication with her daughter. Yeah, with with her daughter or even unspoken. Like, what did that look like? I mean, I was very self-motivated by style and beauty. People often say, oh, you know, where did it come from? And it really didn't come from family. I think it came from media and from magazines like Vogue and from movies like Clueless and being in the mall. Um, And I just loved it. And my mom just supported it and was really like, you know, you look crazy, but if you really want to go to school like that with like over the knee stockings, then like you can, but you're 12. So know that that's unusual. And I would say, I know I'm going to go anyway and get made fun of. Um, and then what about her? Like what are, what are images? You know, I think of my mom, she had those curlers, you know, oh, I love yeah. putting curlers She's in my pretty, hair. My mom's pretty like wash and go her hair. We have the same hair. It's straight, stick straight. It's brown. Were you judgy? Did you judge her when you no. were going through your, yeah, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, no, I would just be like, let's go shopping for me. <laughs> uh, you wrote letters to Vogue when you were like 10 years old? I don't know how old I was, but one was published, and it was a reaction to a Arthur Elgort short skirt story. Arthur Elgort's this like 
fabulous photographer. And I remember writing this letter, editor's letter to Vogue and saying, you know, I really appreciate as a young woman your portrayal of miniskirts as like something that can be very classy and done tastefully and like done well and like bravo. And they, <laughs> they published it. I mean, it's not like that big of a deal, but imagine you're like flipping through a, your new issue as like a 14-year-old and yep. you see your name and it says Emily Weiss, Wilton, Connecticut. I'm like, I'm famous. This is awesome. Now, what were some defining moments uh, in in your path towards what you're doing now that, you know, you look back on in retrospect? I would say the, the biggest, you know, moment for me and Mark, especially in my professional career, was my work with Elisa Santizi when I was, um, you know, 23 to 25. I mean, I was a really precocious. I was probably I was not probably, I was a pain in the ass, like for sure, because I'm super ambitious. I'm really precocious. I say, I have no filter. I say what's on my mind. I'm probably like the worst assistant, but she was so patient with me and we had so much fun. I learned so much from her that I would say it was really the first time in my life I had really um, worked so closely with another individual. Mm. Like I'm usually a real loner and it was really the first time I thought, oh, you know what? I really like teamwork. And and I think that was a big a big moment. Now, did you know when you were launching this blog that yes, I want to convert this into something much larger, or did that kind of happen accidentally? No, it. Ha- I knew it would be successful, but I didn't know what success meant. If that makes sense. So I I was an art major at NYU. I never took a business course, and then I figured it out because it was like, oh, I get it. You have. Um, if you are a media company, you make money through advertising. So let's get some advertising, you know. And, then and that's I had where a, Carrie Diamond comes exactly. in. Exactly. So who's Carrie Diamond and how was she helpful? So I told two people about Into the Gloss. Of course, I told my boss and I said, I'm starting this blog. And is that OK? And she said, sure. And the other person who I went to was Eva Chen. She heads up fashion at Instagram. But at the time, she was the beauty director of Teen Vogue. And I had never actually worked with Eva. But I asked, hey, can I come talk to you about this crazy idea I have? She said, this is great. You absolutely need to do this. And you need to go meet Carrie Diamond. Carrie is this visionary at Lancome, the beauty company. I hounded Carrie Diamond. I wrote her all these emails. She's like, who is this person? And finally, I called her one day and she answered. And I was like, I gotcha. Like, hey, it's it's me. And she's like, what? And I'm like, hey, can I just come? I'll come anytime. She was like, can you be here in 20 minutes? I said, no problem. So I went to her office at Lancome and I showed her my little sketch of what how the website would look because it wasn't up yet. And she said this is great. Have you talked to any other brands? And I said, no, I don't even know what I'm talking about. To, about. What are we talking about? And she said, good. I'm going to give you, I think it was like 2000 or 5000 or something. She was like, I'm going to give you $5,000 and I want an exclusive for six months on like all your banner ads. And I was like, great. I don't know what a banner ad is, but like we'll build it. Mm-hmm. And thank you. It was it was great. It was like, hey, I have the you know uh, ears of at least one person at this very, very big company who believes that we're onto something. I want to talk about raising capital for a moment. Um, Investors include uh, Kirsten Green's uh, Forerunner Ventures, Mm -hmm. the entrepreneur Andy Dunn, who founded Bonobos, Josh Kushner's fund Mm -hmm. Thrive Capital, the venture capital fund founded by the founder of The Gap, Bill Fisher. Talk to me about that process. And what is it that you told them you wanted to build? The, the, The most influential beauty company of our generation. 
Kirsten Green, you know, is is really someone to note here because venture capital is a highly male-dominated industry, as is the tech industry, as is the startup industry. And Kirsten's fund, it's noteworthy, is all females. She has, I think it's like four women who work with her. So despite the dearth or the scarcity of women at both at venture firms, but also, you know, starting starting companies, like what pushback did you, did you face? I think in life in general, we as humans go off a lot of familiar familiarity and a lot of pattern recognition. And when you're thinking about a room full of men meeting someone like me, coming in and talking to them about something they know nothing about, it's a much harder sell. Mm -hmm. You need to then support it with a ton of data. You need to support it with a ton of numbers. It needs to be really understandable why your mascara is better than the mascara down the street, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't expect a table full of men to know as well as if I had come in and started talking about, you know, Dropbox. Did you explain? Yeah, why I explained. I, I tried to understand what would help them understand so what, what, the beauty, you know, the beauty market. And walking through the drugstore and trying to pick out a lipstick out of a wall of 700 lipstick colors that you can't even test because they're wrapped in plastic is also hard. <laughs> And going to Sephora and talking to someone who you've never met before who has no idea, you know, who you are is also not ideal. So being able to talk about, you know, the direct-to-consumer relationship that we want to build through our background as being really expert storytellers and expert communicate, you know, really being able to to communicate um, on the channels that women are on like Instagram, like Snapchat, like, you know, our website and through the comment section and building a company where we really want to engage her, you Mm -hmm. know, and actually really want her to help build it with us and tell us what she's into and us be able to respond to her rather than this um, kind of archaic way that a lot of brands just have in their DNA where they say, we know best, we're going to make something over here in a place that you can't see and you don't know us and we're going to throw it over the fence and then we hope you like it, you know, but we're not really going to talk about about it with you, is mm-hmm. is all a little bit like funky. That's a lot of the conversation we had. Building a cosmetics business is very different from building a blog. And so, you know, talk to me about like the chemistry of, of these products, because, to you know, I, I'm kind of a skeptic. Like I look at all this and I'm, first of all, overwhelmed. And I'm like, you know what? They're all work the same. <laughs> they all have water and, you know, X, Y and Z, you mm-hmm. know, in the first three ingredients. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about just like the raw chemistry behind yeah. how you went about it. Absolutely. It's a great question. And it's one that many women have. Um, so you- the first first thing that we did was hire an expert in-house who's product development, you know, done it for 10 years and surrounded ourselves with various advisors and also hired and contracted a independent chemist to work on developing with us, translating all of our ideas and our crazy, you know, ideas and our wants and our needs, kind of like an architect would with a home Mm -hmm. and um, would say, okay, let me create this recipe for you. And it's been called, it's a democratic skin line for the Instagram generation because the prices are accessible. Yes. They're $12 to $28. One fun part of all of this is that it comes in a bubble wrap bag (laughs) that kind of has a pink tint, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of kid-like. Yeah, (laughs) because I think beauty should make you smile. Like, it shouldn't make you 
feel like I can't afford this or it shouldn't make you feel like, should I use this last drop of eye cream because if I use this and I'm out and maybe I'll just use this one on Sundays? It's like, no, you should be able to use this all the time, not sweat it. You can have everything that we make, our whole collection for under, I think, $200 now. You know, you're like a baller Mm -hmm. for having like like everything. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My guest has been Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.